The world has watched and waited as teams of researchers scour their labs for the answer to the pandemic, a COVID-19 vaccine. Could it be here by the end of the year? Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. This week, pharma giant Pfizer announced some promising, if not spectacular, results from their testing of a COVID vaccine. Analysis of the early results show that the vaccine is 90% effective at preventing COVID. This is one of the vaccines that Canada has pre-ordered 20 million doses so far, with more coming. And this vaccine requires two shots, so that 20 million only covers 10 million people. Pfizer can produce 50 million doses by the end of the year and 1.3 billion in 2021. Now, earlier this year at on the Unpublished Cafe, we asked the question, how long did you think it would take to have a safe and effective vaccine? And overwhelmingly, you estimated it would be longer than 12 months. Well, here we are just five months later. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we take a look at what could be a game changer in the pandemic. And later, we'll find out how Canadians feel about the discovery. First, Dr. Rewat Dianandan is a professor at epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. And he joins us now. And Ray, uh, 90% effective. That's pretty substantial, is it not? It really is. The threshold that we were looking for was 50%, so this blows that threshold out of the water. And keep in mind, the seasonal flu has an effectiveness of anywhere between 40 and 70%. So what it means is, if you get the vaccine, you've got a 90% chance of having it protect you from, we think, infection. Now, I phrase it that way deliberately, because it's unclear from the preliminary data if it's preventing infection or preventing disease. There are two different things. Well, let's talk about the differences then. What are they? Well, um, if it produces what we call neutralizing antibodies, it can prevent the virus from causing an infection in the first place, from entering your cell in the first place. If, on the other hand, it's preventing mass reproduction of the virus within your cells, then it's preventing the illness from, um, from, from being had. So you still might test positive for being infected, but you won't get sick from it the second cut. And it's unclear if that also means you won't be infectious. So far, most of the whisperings I'm hearing suggest that it is actually preventing infection, which is the ideal scenario. But either way, it's a good mm-hmm. thing. What percentage would be required to get to herd immunity? No, that's a great question. In general, we think between 70 and 80 percent based upon what the reproduction number is before we uh, deployed all these various public health resources. But uh, it also varies with what the effectiveness of the vaccine is. So with an effectiveness of 90%, you're looking at the low end. So 70% probably would be needed to uh, to get herd immunity. Um, Don't hold me to that. That's just a ballpark figure, obviously. But if we don't get to that threshold, if we don't get 70 or 80% of uptake, you can do other things. You can lower the threshold for herd immunity by keeping mask wearing in place, by keeping distancing in place, by keeping limits on gatherings in place. So artificially lower that threshold until incrementally more people get it. So that means we're going to be living with these other restrictions, the mask, the distancing, the limits on gatherings for some time still, even when the vaccine starts getting deployed. Now, in terms of the vaccine, the protection rate is still not clear. Is that, is that because it wears off quickly? Yes. So the length of immunity is unclear. Um, and we don't know that because we've only been living with this virus for for less than a year, yeah. essentially. We don't know if you can have be immune for more than a year because no one's been around it for more than a year yet. Mm. It seems unlikely, though, that it'll last for more than a year or two or three. 
So I anticipate that when COVID vaccines become commonplace, we'll have to experience them possibly on an annual basis. Already, this particular formulation requires at least one booster shot, and almost all of the candidates I'm aware of also require a booster shot. That's not unusual for vaccines. I got my shingles vaccine last year, uh, or two years ago rather, and that needed uh, a booster shot. Um, so it just complicates the logistics. It means you got to line up twice. It means you got to buy twice as many, you know, uh, and maybe even a third booster if, in fact, that ends up being what's required. Uh, any idea how much longer uh, testing will will have to go on before we'll get any approval and we can see it start rolling out? The stopping point for the clinical trial, the Pfizer clinical trial, was supposed to be when 164 COVID cases were achieved. They've got 94 cases now, so that's more than halfway. Probably two more months to get that many, and we'll need those two months to process the safety data, maybe another month and a half to get it all you know, published, etc. However, um, they're probably going to apply for an emergency use authorization in the USA by the end of this calendar year. What does that mean? It means that in some cases, the Americans might be able to use it in really uh, vulnerable groups, maybe healthcare workers in hot zone areas, you know, that kind of thing. Now, when do we get it in Canada? That's another story entirely. Pfizer is one of the manufacturers that we have a deal with to get this vaccine. So that's a good thing. And probably sometime in Q1 of, of 2021, uh, Health Canada will approve uh, this vaccine if this goes as it looks like it's going, which means we can probably start getting it into some arms by middle of Q2. Dr. Rewad Dianandan is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. Joining us in the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about this new vaccine from Pfizer, which, according to early reports, could be up to 90% effective. And, and you know, we, we discussed uh, vaccines before, Ray, and, and, you know, this one doesn't contain virus or virus proteins. And if there's none of that, how does the body respond to an injection that's supposed to, you know, take care of COVID? I thought the whole point was, it, it having, does, yeah. Yeah, it does deliver the spike protein, which is a protein on the surface of the COVID virus into your cell. So it gives essentially target practice for your body to recognize it. You produce antibodies in response to that protein. And, and so those antibodies will then be able to recognize the genuine virus that has the same spike protein on the surface when it does arrive and hopefully prevent it from entering your cell. And it's good news for the other vaccine candidates that use the spike protein approach. I hope I'm not wrong, but I hope this is one of the spike protein uh, candidates. There's, there's so many vaccine candidates, I get them all confused in my head sometimes. I'm pretty sure that the, that the Pfizer one is one of the ones using the spike protein. And, and in general, that's been much of the way many of the modern vaccines have worked in recent years, it's it's unusual to get the disease from the vaccine because many modern vaccines don't contain the disease. Um, some people got confused by the announcement of 90% effective because it was phrased in a clumsy way. It was phrased in a way that suggested that for those 10% of people it was not effective on, they actually got the disease from the vaccine. That's not the case. It's just that in those 10%, the vaccine failed to protect them from the disease that was already in the community. It's a subtle distinction, but it's important. Okay. Now, uh, we hear this vaccine is is not stable. What, what does that mean to, to the layman? It means it has to be refrigerated. 
Um, so it has to be stored in a certain kind of environment. And that's a problem mm-hmm. because we have to distribute it across a wide geography at scale. And most of the refrigeration units in drugstores across the country aren't equipped for this amount of coldness. So that means mm-hmm. we're going to have to you know, buy a bunch of refrigeration units, ship them around the country, uh, put them in the trucks that allow us to ship the stuff out, if indeed this is the formulation we use. There are some other vaccine candidates that don't require storage at that temperature. What other logistical hurdles do you see to rolling out the vaccine? Some um, vaccines require special training to deliver the dose. I don't think that's the case here. That's a good thing. So probably pharmacists could give it, public health nurses, recent nursing graduates could do it. Um, we There's actually a, a global shortage of glass, believe it or not. And we need glass to store the ampules, unless, we, unless it's possible to do this one in plastic. I'm not sure. But in general, glass is used. So hopefully we'll get enough uh, glass ampules bought. Canada had the foresight to buy 35 million syringes and 35 million cotton swabs to ensure that everyone has access to at least one dose. Hopefully, since then, we've acquired more of them. It's amazing. that This is the stuff you got to think about. Do we have enough syringes on hand? All right. So do we have the, the infrastructure for distribution? Around the world, we've seen some creative approaches to distributing medications. So in some countries, Coca-Cola is a distributing network. So you send medicines on Coca-Cola trucks right? because they're going there anyway to these remote areas. Just, just use up the space on the trucks. Wow. Um, we could retask some manufacturing centers, places that make hand sanitizer or other kinds of uh, you know, simple pharmaceutical products to maybe manufacture inoculants. Maybe. I don't know for sure, but mm-hmm. it seems like something that we could explore. So getting enough doses is one thing. If we could manufacture it locally, that would be great. Shipping it out into remote areas is another. Getting the right clientele to deliver that dosage, storing it is an issue. Of course, getting the right equipment to store and to to process and so forth. Then getting people to want to take it is another thing entirely. Vaccine hesitancy is something that uh, cripples public health endeavors across the continent and has been for some time. This vaccine, I think, will be popular. I anticipate many people will want it, but we may reach a point where we're going to have to deploy some interesting public health messaging to convince people of the need. And I think my job is just starting that front, right? So um, and it's important to be transparent with people because this is not a risk-free endeavor. It's not perfectly safe. Nothing is perfectly safe. Every vaccine has a little bit of risk associated with it. And when this is applied to hundreds of millions of people globally, if not billions, then the numbers of people who will have adverse reactions goes up substantially. So people need to be you know, uh, wary of that and also be able to make adult decisions for their own, for themselves and their families. Having said that, the data so far for this vaccine, for the Pfizer vaccine, suggests that there are no serious adverse events yet. And by serious, we mean no one's died of it, no one's been hospitalized for it. No one has had um, uh, any sort of disability resulting from it or an existing condition exacerbated by it. But people typically get pain on the site of injection or maybe a short-term fever. And that can be frightening for some people. And it may be that some people can't tolerate it. So we're going to have to go through that safety data carefully to figure out who can and can't get it. Uh, and one more thing I should point out is no COVID vaccine is being tested on anyone under the age of 12 yet. So it is unlikely that we will see children being vaccinated within the next couple of years until we start 
getting some of that safety data for kids. Is that because it doesn't seem to impact them as much? No, it's because children's immune systems are different. Mm. And they can be unpredictable. And so we've got to be careful about you know, how we do the clinical trials testing, what dosage to start with, for example. Maybe we have to go back to the animal trials to figure out the right dosage. You know? And we also don't know if it's going to work in the really extreme elderly. The older we get, the less immunogenic response we sometimes get. We might need to up the dosage for the elderly. Sort of like we do with the flu. So I don't know if people are aware, but there is a high-dose flu vaccine for seniors because seniors need more protection and they tend to have a lesser immunogenic response. That might be the case here too. We just don't know. So the goal is first to protect the healthcare workers, then some of the vulnerable people, and then allow society to open up and then figure out who else we can uh, inoculate. If there is a plan in place, I suspect it looks something like that. Does this, this vaccine, or at least what we've heard about it so far, does that give you optimism that we are seeing perhaps the end of the tunnel? Oh, yes, absolutely. I can't understate this enough. Vaccines are coming, people. Like the, the salvation of our biotech sector is, is proving its worth. So there is a very bright light at the end of the tunnel. The problem is that tunnel is still quite long. Mm. And my concern is people will see the light. Oh, it's got to just, you know, business as usual until the vaccine arrives. No, it's not business as usual. We have to stay put. We have to endure the restrictions. We have to um, curtail our socialization and our exposures because a lot of people can still die between now and when we get herd immunity a year from now. It's, mir- it's miraculous how quickly this vaccine has been developed. Absolutely miraculous. And I think a Nobel Prize will come out of this. We thought it was going to take at least four years. But um, it's still it's still kind of early, right? So the yeah. end is in sight, and I want people to take comfort and strength in knowing the end is in sight, and understand you just got to hunker down now and delay your need to socialize for another few months, and have faith that by this time next year, I'm predicting we will not be afraid of this disease. It won't be over, but we won't be afraid of it. And I think the pandemic will be declared over sometime in early 2022, even though it'll still, the disease will still be with us in some parts of the world, mm-hmm. it won't be a crisis then. Ray, I want to thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on. Great fun. Ray Wadiyanandan is a professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa. A COVID vaccine would shift this pandemic on its ear. Let's face it, a vaccine would put us back as close to normal as we were before COVID. Abacus Data took a look at Canadians' attitudes about this game changer, and David Coletto's the president, and he joins us now. And, and David, one-third, according to your numbers, would take it right away. And, and, you know, I thought considering the impact of a global pandemic, that, that number might have been a little higher. Yeah, it, it, I think it demonstrates the the reluctance or the at least the resistance that some people are feeling right now around the the the, the, the um, vaccine. I think it's it's driven in part by you know how politicized it's become in the United States, and Canadians are watching and have been watching as closely as anybody the U.S. election, and so I think that that has something to do with it. And I think there's also just generally. Um, resistance to, to vaccines more broadly, whether it's COVID-19 or anything else. Mm-hmm. And so I think those two factors, um, you know, are affecting it. I think there's no doubt that Canadians recognize that a vaccine is really our only way out of this mess. Um, but on the other hand, the speed at which, you know, we, we're working, not we, but scientists are working to get that vaccine 
might leave some people uncomfortable, right? And so there's this push and pull of, I know I need to get it. I know it's going to protect me, my family. I know it's going to allow us to get back to normal faster. On the other hand, you know, a lot of people are saying, I'm going to wait for others to take it first to make sure that um, there's no negative impacts. And then once we're 100% sure it's good to go, I'll get in line. So I think that's the thinking right now of, of where people's heads are at. Which provinces were, were the most hesitant about a vaccine? Well, we didn't see huge differences across the country, but there were some. Uh, Alberta and Quebec um, are, are show high, higher levels or elevated levels of, of resistance. Um, you know, in, in Alberta, for example, 28% said they will either not take it at all or might be persuaded, but right now they're not inclined to, and about the same number in Quebec. Now, that's just a little bit higher than, say, B.C. or the Atlantic Canadian provinces or, the, or, or Saskatchewan, Manitoba. But, you know, we do see some resistance there. And I think it's tied to, um, in Quebec, there's, there has been a little bit of a legacy, a history of, of, of vaccine resistance. And then Alberta, I think it's partly political. Uh, we do see in our survey that, that those more conservative-oriented are, are typically less likely to say they'd get the vaccine than say that somebody might vote Liberal or NDP. So I think those those factors explain Alberta and in, in Quebec. But Ontario is, is more or less at the national average. And then Atlantic Canadians are the most likely, in fact, uh, to say that they take it um, or, or, you know, be first, maybe second in line to get it, not not the first to get it. What, what evidence would or could change the mind of those who are either on the fence or not really keen on the idea? Any idea? Well, we asked about that. And, and what we found is that for about six out of 10 of those who um, are, are particularly resistant um, or, or slightly more than six out of 10, it's really about fear of the, the vaccine itself hurting people, right? It's not, um, it, it, it's not a, a, not gonna drive people to get this vac- vaccine to convince them that this is how we get faster to normal. It's about personal safety. And so, you know, for example, um, two thirds of those who said they could be persuaded, but they're not inclined right now to get vaccinated say, I want to make sure it doesn't harm people, that this vaccine is safe. That would persuade me to get it. Um, and that's for, for most resistant, uh, vaccine-resistant folks, the, you know, the, probably the biggest factor that would help them get more comfortable taking it. And I guess when you look at hesitancy, this is where the government's challenge is going to be in when it comes to messaging about this, right? It is. And then that's, you know, we, we've been doing research at Advocates trying to, you know, understand how do we get people to get to behave and think in ways that get us faster to normal. I mean, there's a whole set of research that we could talk about, about, you know, contact tracing and the app and why aren't people downloading it on their phone and they're worried about privacy. When it comes to the vaccine, we found that, you know, no one message is going to move people the most. Um, Getting faster to normal is perhaps a better message. It gets people to understand the collective uh, importance of all of us doing our part to get our, our economy, our society, our day-to-day lives back to normal. Um, but for others, it's more about protecting myself or a loved one. So it really depends on your orientation. If you're speaking to somebody who's more conservative-oriented, a message about getting things back to normal seems to do better, at least in our research, whereas those who might be more inclined to vote liberal or NDP are more persuaded by the let's let's protect ourselves and our family. So it does show that no one message 
is going to work for everybody, but that a, a mix of do the right thing for yourself and your family, but also do the right thing for all of us, for everybody, for the collective, actually uh, moves people, particularly in Quebec, into perhaps being persuaded to get this vaccine. David Coletto is joining if us. In when the it un- comes. Okay. Uh, joining us in the Unpublished Cafe, he's president of Abacus Data as we talk about their numbers, uh, looking at the Pfizer vaccine and uh, Canadians' attitudes toward it. And, and you know, when you when you talk to Canadians about taking it, what reasons do they give you for wanting to take it? Well, I think it's, it's, it's primarily, um, you know, for most people, about six out of ten say it's either to protect myself or protect loved ones. It's the same message that, that you know, drives them. Um, but for about four out of 10 people who may be, you know, not necessarily worried about the vaccine, uh, worried about the virus itself, aren't, aren't, you know, perceive a lot of risk, the reason they might take it is because they want to get us back to normal faster. And, and so, you know, when we underlie in, in our research, not all Canadians, you know, are deeply worried about getting the vac- uh, virus about being exposed to it, right? It, it's not 100% out there. And so for those folks who may not feel at risk, may not feel exposed to it, um, you know, a message or a reason that tells them, um, you know, the, the, this, is, this is what we need to do collectively um, can actually move them to, to, to take it and they indicate is, is the best reason. You know, we're, we're in the second wave right now, and, uh, well, between Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta, the numbers are, are not uh, very good. Are Canadians more concerned now about contracting COVID? They are. We, we've been tracking this basically since day one. And in the early days of the pandemic, we had high, high numbers of people saying, I'm worried about contracting it. I'm worried about the effects that it's having on all our lives. I, I'm getting more anxious about it over time. We saw that drop off in you know the late spring and into the summer and even early fall but as the case numbers increased so too did people's worry and so we now have you know majority of canadians saying they think the worst is still to come um you know half are saying they're getting more worried about this over the last week than than not than less worried that's an indicator that that those numbers that we hear reported every single day in the news have an effect on how we feel they have an effect on our anxiety level And I would say Canadians are probably collectively more concerned about the pandemic today than they were at the very beginning. It's a different worry. The beginning, it was uncertainty. We didn't know what would would happen. Now we know far more about this virus. We're seeing it spreading almost in a way uncontrollably. And that's concerning to to most people. And so we're this second stage or or wave, sorry, of of this virus has also created a second wave of, of anxiety and concern that different and maybe deeper than it was back in March and April. Mm-hmm. David, I want to thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure, Ed. Thanks. David Coletto is the president of Abacus Data, and this leads to our unpublished vote question. If the Pfizer COVID vaccine is safe and effective, according to Health Canada, how soon do you feel it will be available to the Canadian public? Three months, six months, 12 months? longer than 12 months. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Ray Watt and professor of epidemiology at the University of Ottawa, and David Coletto of Abacus Data for joining us. And I want to thank you for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.